One day, a scribe, a scribe in the first century Palestine, was a religious professional. He was a theologian. He was a clergy. One day, a scribe asked Jesus, and we can read about this in Mark chapter 12, which commandment is the most important of all? That's a good question, actually. Of all the laws in the Bible, which is the most important commandment? And Jesus answered him, and you can see that in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, Jesus answered saying, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now there, Jesus is quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. This is the law that everyone uh, easily agreed was the greatest and the most important law of the Old Testament. But then, without being asked, Jesus continued and added one more. In chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How did Jesus know? He did know, didn't he? Jesus knew that people can profess to love God and not love their neighbors. People can profess to love God and even hate their neighbors. And in fact, some years after Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, Jesus will send another letter to the believers in Ephesus. And in that letter, Jesus will say to the Ephesian believers, and you can read this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The church at Ephesus was a theologically astute congregation. They knew they could spot out heresy. They were zealous to to fight against heresy, to maintain orthodoxy. But you know what they lacked? They lacked love. And knowing that, Paul's exhortation in this passage to the Ephesian believers to grow in love, you see, it was both fitting and prophetic. And indeed, our goal this morning is to see Paul's exhortation to these believers to grow in love. And uh, I'd like to draw your attention to three things this morning. Uh, First is the exhortation, the exhortation. Now in this passage, Paul gives us a blueprint for the Christian life. So let me put it this way. The imperatives of the Christian life follows the indicatives of the Christian life. Now the words imperatives and indicatives, these are words taken from our grammar studies. If a sentence is in the indicative mood, it's a statement of fact. It's making a statement of things as they are. If a sentence is in an imperative mood, that is a command that that is being made. So for example, it is an indicative statement, a sentence to say Ken is standing up. That's an indicative. But if you were to say Ken, stand up, that is an imperative, that is a command. So that's the difference between the indicative 
and the imperative. Indicative is a statement of things as they are. Imperative is the command. So in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul has given us the indicative, the statements of the gospel. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has told us that in Christ, God has reconciled sinners to himself. And in Christ, God has formed into one family the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And now Paul follows these gospel indicatives with the gospel imperatives. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, now of course, whenever you encounter the word therefore, and it's asking you to think about everything that came before. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, when Paul talked about how faith is the gift of God, he told us how we were God's workmanship created to walk in Him. He didn't explain what the walking meant there, but now he explains that to us. And he says, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. The expression to walk, uh, both in Greek and for people who are steeped in the Old Testament, it, it's a characteristic way that you live. It's your lifestyle. And what Paul is saying is that the grace that God has lavished upon us is also a calling. And again, if you remember chapter 2, verse 22, Paul told the Ephesians, in Christ, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the question to ask is, what is a fitting dwelling place for the God who is holy? Does God dwell in a defiled, stained place? Or does God dwell in a holy dwelling place? And if the Spirit of God is building us, the believers, into God's dwelling place, and I think then the implication is clear. The grace that God has lavished upon us is also a calling. The grace that justifies the sinner is a grace that also sanctifies and makes the sinner Holy. So that being said, we can understand the larger structure of the Christian life. This is a blueprint for the Christian life. Christian gospel and Christian life are related to each other as the fountain is related to the stream of water. The gospel is the fountain. And the new life of the Christian is the stream that flows from the fountain. And just as there can be no stream without the fountain, the Christian life dries up unless it is constantly replenished and nourished by the gospel. It's not merely that the gospel is logically and temporarily uh, uh, present before the new life. That is absolutely true, but it's not just that. 
the gospel both initiates the Christian life and sustains the Christian life. I remember some time ago there was a visitor to our church and uh, you know, he and his wife visited us for a few weeks and at the end of those few weeks he told me, Ken, I like your sermons well enough, but why do you always preach the gospel to Christians? <laughs> and I, I did try to explain to him why we do that. I'm not sure he entirely understood it. Um, you know, I remember thinking how odd it is that, that you've been taught to think that there's something deeper than the gospel. But you see, the, the reason why I preach the gospel is that the gospel is not just something that we encounter at the beginning of our Christian life. The gospel isn't just the thing that begins our Christian life, but it sustains the Christian life. And so that's Paul's exhortation. Therefore, in view of everything that I have said, I urge you to walk. And of course, this is no different, is it, from Romans chapter 12, where Paul said, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. The gospel is what sustains the Christian life. The gospel is what energizes the Christian life. And that's why... uh, when we find ourselves struggling in our Christian life, most people try to turn to tactics, advices, things to do. But first and foremost, we need to go back to the gospel. We need to go back to the fountain where the stream flows. So that's the exhortation. Then comes the standard of the, the walk, the Christian life. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is the calling that God has called us in view of which calling our lives must be worthy of? It's not uh, worthy that when Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, the Greek expression there is prisoner in the Lord. Now, to translate that as for the Lord is perfectly legitimate. But I think it's helpful to remember the the heavy emphasis that Paul gave us in chapters 1 and 2, how every spiritual blessing we have in Christ, Paul no longer considered himself in any other way than as a man who is in Christ. Even as he's a prisoner, and technically speaking, he was a prisoner of Nero. But Paul understood himself as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus, prisoner in Jesus Christ. And that tells us something really important. Our calling, in view of which our lives must be worthy, our calling first and foremost is to be in Christ. And our manner of life is to be worthy of that calling to be in Christ. And so Paul brings that out uh, in verse 2. So he urges the believers, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk with all humility and gentleness. Uh, These words, humility and gentleness. 
they're actually really important words because these are the two very same words that Jesus used to describe himself. Matthew 11, verse 29, where Jesus says, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the two exact same words. I am gentle, and what Paul calls a humility uh, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, it's rendered as lowly. It means the same thing. The importance of what is here, what we see here, is that what, what Paul is urging the Ephesian believers to be, all with all humility and with gentleness, this is a description of Jesus. You see, the Greco-Roman culture uh, put a premium on public honor, respect. And in that culture, it was simply taken as granted that humility was a shameful debasement. Uh, Humility was for people in the lower rungs of the society. Humility was for people born into lower caste of society. And so humility, uh, for the Greco-Roman culture, actually meant humiliation. But Jesus, Jesus called himself a servant. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus redefined humility. And because of what Jesus has done, humility is not a shameful debasement, but humility is the glory of the Lord. And likewise, gentleness is not weakness, but gentleness is strength under control. The New Testament scholar John Stott puts it like this, and I I think he got it exactly right. Gentleness is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Now that definition fits Jesus beautifully, doesn't it? A strong person, a man of strength, and yet he is a master of his own desires, of his own life, and he makes himself a servant. And Stott goes on to say that gentleness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God or of men. Jesus, who did not count equality with God, I think, to be grasped. Philippians chapter 2, what Paul tells us there is that Jesus had every right to demand and assert his right as the God of the universe. And yet having that right, he denied himself. He humbled himself, made himself nothing. So gentleness and lowliness, gentleness and humility, these are all pictures of what we see in Jesus Christ. And that that tells us something really important. What is the Christian life? What is Christian holiness? Christian life and Christian holiness are not an adherence to certain lifestyle. 
Christian life and Christian holiness are not even conformity to God's law, viewed simply as a rules to follow. And I think people often make the mistake when they see God's law, they see only a list of rules without seeing the larger picture and the import. But we need to understand that Christian life and Christian holiness is really a call to become like Jesus. So that Jesus' heart shapes our hearts and his character is imprinted upon our character. Now, what does that look like? Look at verses 2 and 3. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When do you need patience in relationships? Well, you need patience in relationships when that other person is pushing you a little bit. When it's a difficult relationship. When do you need to bear with one another in love? When there are reasons that tempt you to stop, to throw in the towels and and put up your hands. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why did they need to hear this? Because there were so many temptations and it happens in every human relationships and it even happens in the church too. The fact that we are a, a, a body brought together by God's grace means that we don't choose who belong to church. Uh, the church is not where you go to find like-minded people. You know, that's a club. That's a political party. The church is where sinners come who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And in this gathering of sinners, you will run into people that are hard to love. Uh, you will run into people who annoy you, who really try your patience. But that's precisely what Paul says, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager to maintain really has the force of patiently loving someone who is difficult to love and maybe patiently loving someone who is even Foolish. How do we do this? You know, it's only the person who continues to return to the gospel, who is amazed by Jesus' patient love for him, that person can patiently bear with one another. And only that person can do that as we continue to return to the gospel. You know, so many people today reduce the Christian faith down to my personal relationship with Jesus. Now, that's important. But we have seen throughout our study of Ephesians that God's goal of redemption is not merely the individual's experience of salvation, but rather God is forming a new society. He's building his church. He's building his kingdom. He brings into his kingdom the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, and out of them he is building a dwelling place for God. 
That is why when we, when our understanding of the Christian faith begins and ends with personal relationship with Jesus, that is an extremely inadequate understanding of what the Christian faith is. And that is why when we too quickly walk away from the church because we find people that are difficult and hard to love, you know, we are in fact saying no to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says, with patience, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And when Jesus says that, when we too quickly walk away from a church, we are saying to Jesus, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. Don't tell me what to do. I don't care what you command me. I'm going to do what makes me feel good. And you know what else we are doing when we too quickly walk away from people? We're actually twisting the gospel message too because, you know, in your heart you must be thinking, you know, Jesus never had to be patient with me. (laughs) Jesus never had to endure me. Because if you continue to return to the gospel, and in the gospel you are reminded that Jesus actually daily bears with you, that he has given you unending patience, that he comes to you day after day with mercies that are new every day. You know, I think Peter was looking for compliments when he asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? I think Peter was looking for compliments. I think he was hoping Jesus would say to him, wow, Peter, I had no idea you were so gracious. I had no idea you were so mature. But what does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. You see, if we remember, and if we are truly touched in our heart by the fact that Jesus daily bears with our failings, and can I put it this way? Despite what you and I may think of ourselves, you and I are not easy to love. We're a hard to love kinds of people. But Jesus bears with us. He is gracious with us. He is kind to us. And it's only as we remember that grace that we are able to love people that are difficult, that are hard to love. So that's the standard. Thirdly and finally, the unity. Now there is in the body of Christ, there is in the church of Jesus Christ, both unity and diversity. You will note that in chapter 4, starting with verse 7, Paul will show us the amazing diversity within the body of Christ. Uh, Before he gets to the diversity in the church in verses 4 through 6, he shows us what Christian unity looks like, and his understanding of the unity of the believers is grounded in the triune God. So verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. There is one body because every believer is dwelt by the same one spirit. So our common possession of the one spirit forms us into one body. 
Second verses four and five. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have all believed in Jesus Christ, and into Him we have been baptized, and we have one common hope of His return. Third verse six. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Father has one family of which we are equally members and heirs. And the fact that Paul grounds and bases our unity on God's triune nature is significant. You know, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a relationship based on mutual love. And so if our faith is truly in the triune God, then our relationship with one another will take on the character of love. And our relationship with one another in the body of Christ will not be a self-seeking kind of relationship. It will not be self-aggrandizing kind of a relationship. And it will not be a self-promoting kind of a relationship. Rather, uh, we will be seeking the good of the other person. We will be humbling ourselves. And we will be delighting to give honor and respect. Now, did you notice how in verses 5 and 6, Paul uses the word one seven times. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. One body and one spirit, one hope. It's as if Paul is suggesting to us that our faith will not reach perfection and maturity until we are united in love under the one Spirit, one Lord Jesus, and one Father of all. And as Paul keeps saying one, 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 how can we not hear an echo of what Jesus said in Matthew, Mark chapter 12. The Lord is one. And how can we forget the fact that Jesus went on to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No one individual believer is complete without the body of Christ. We need one another. And that is our calling. We have been called into Jesus. And the calling that grace now urges us, exhorts us, it commands us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is our calling in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let's pray together. Dear gracious God and Father, we thank you that 
you have taught us and reminded us that we belong to a body, to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, to your kingdom, to your family. And Lord, we confess that often we lack patience and endurance when we love one another. We give up too easily and we are offended too easily. Lord, help us to return day and day again, every morning and every evening to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus loved us when we were not lovable, where Jesus gives us grace upon grace, where he daily bears with us endures with us and gently and with kindness bears with us. So Lord Jesus, we pray that your heart may become our heart, your character, our character, and your joy, our joy. Help us, Lord, teach us how to love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.